This bonus series was launched in cooperation with Six Swiss Exchange. It focuses on companies that completed the Sparks IPO Academy course, a six-month fast-track IPO training program designed for high-potential scale-ups. And now, on with the show. Waking up every morning and fighting a cause or going after a cause that you really believe in with people you, you obviously like and you have selected yourself. I think that it's clearly one of the luxuries that entrepreneurs have. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Christian, a very much welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Thank you very much, Sylvan. It's a great honor and pleasure to be here. And, and very much looking forward to having this discussion with you. Same here. You're the co-founder CEO at Bcomp, a global leader in advanced renewable material solutions. Before we talk about your company's journey, you actually got your PhD in material sciences from the EPFL and then went on to work for an aluminium manufacturer right before starting Bcomp in 2011. So I wonder what sort of led you to leave this stable, secure, safe corporate life? Sure. So um, it's, it's right that I, I, I joined Alcan. Uh, it's, it's the company is now called Constellium. Um, they had this vision and ambition to build an innovation hub. Um, you know, early 2000s or mid 2000s, it was a big, uh, the, the big topic of innovation. Everybody wanted to actually innovate rather than just do R&D. Mm -hmm. um, and so I joined this innovation hub, um, innovation sales, it was called back then as an innovation project manager. Um, and I just found myself generating and putting together a lot of slides for two or three years, uh, trying to convince pe people, you know, be, trying to be an intrapreneur uh, in a very large uh, corporate organization uh, with cultural mixes from, from Canadian, French, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and also Swiss um, like backgrounds. I just found it quite frustrating, to be honest, in the sense that I, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people, um, in general, quite risk averse people who, you know, found it very hard to, to find to actually make a decision. Um, and you found yourself going with a, you know, changing the pitch slide, going to the next stakeholder, internal stakeholder, trying to convince that person. And so making circles, um, we didn't really get anywhere. And at the same point, at the same time, I had this, this Bcomp project kind of hanging, which was a, a garage thing still back then. Um, and that's where, yeah, we, I guess we'll talk about it a bit more, but, but that's, that's where we got the opportunity and the stars sort of aligned. And, and we said, let's, let's go and push that button. And I, I often say also, when I give, um, early stage, uh, startup training and stuff that, you know, sometimes you need to do things to understand that you're not uh, actually made for it. So right. for me, typically this corporate experience is, was necessary for me to understand that I wasn't designed and, and made for a corporate life. So it was sort of an easy decision for you to then move on and start your own company. Absolutely, yeah. And where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Did you have any role models in your family that inspired you? Or did you always feel that somewhere within you that, hey, one day I want to start my own company? I had um, maybe not so much within the family. I mean, my dad was an engineer um, and he, he was, uh, you know, he had a senior position in a, in a, in a, in a company, in a, in a Swiss company and and. I think was very entrepreneurial in the way he, he managed the, the company and, and the responsibilities he had. Um, one thing, I don't know why, but during also already during high school, I often said that eventually I wanted to create something, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know, I didn't really know what that meant for me in terms of, you know, creating. 
Um, and then it wasn't before I actually I actually uh, participated to the venture the the venture challenge that was called Lost. You know, but back then I think it has changed, yeah. uh, but the format is still very similar. So um, hosted by Venture Lab back mm-hmm. then, um, and so it's it's these classes you that you take. I think 10, 10 times four four hours in the evening between five and nine, and I just found it really mind blowing the the people you know who who presented there, um, and just this entrepreneurial mindset. That's the first time I think in my life that I really experienced this entrepreneurial mindset, and 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 I got totally fascinated by it. And I I really thought for me for myself, wow, th- this is actually what I want to do. <laughs> uh, you know, this is what creating means for me. I really want to to go and and start my own company, a venture, and and. I think that's where where it restarted. And getting this missing piece that corporate life couldn't get you to actually execute and build because that's probably the most rewarding part. Absolutely, it is. It's really this, you know, having this idea, um, be it, be be passionate and convinced of of your of the mission uh, that you've set for yourself and for the team, and then also uh, I think you know going after it with people you've actually chosen. Right at the beginning, you handpick the people, uh, you partner up with people you trust in, um, and then you handpick your your teammates on the way, and 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 you know waking up every morning and and fighting a cause or going after a, a, a cause that you really believe in right. with people you you obviously like and you have selected yourself. Yeah. I think that's, you know, one, it's clearly one of the luxuries that entrepreneurs have. Despite all the challenges that come with of it course. too, of course. <laughs> of course. You mentioned you started out as a garage project. So very cliche, startup in a garage. Take us back to these days. What were you doing? How did these early days of Becom look like? It, it is very cliche indeed. And it really started in, in Julian's garage. So one of the co-founders, um, Julian is is a top-notch engineer, uh, but also he's very handy. He's He's very good with actually you know, making things with his hands. And um, we had this, uh, this, this obsession of building the lightest possible skis. And, and uh, so we, we met once, twice per week in his garage, mm-hmm. um, building the skis, uh, making things, you know, lighter. We got inspired by one of other co-founder, Cyril Boinet, who had founded um, DB Drake Boinet Skis some years before. Um, and the, the, the structure they had chosen to build those skis was actually really smart. Uh, and so we we just decided to take that uh, that concept and bring it to the next level. Um, so we were literally meeting, you know, twice a week in the evenings uh, and and building skis. It it sounds very cheesy, and but it is what it is. Um, and that's where also eventually we we got we came across natural fiber natural fiber composites. Um, it was very early stage in a sense that it was it started being a topic in in, in the academic um, environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took it there. We ordered some flax fabrics. We incorporated them into into the structures, into the skis we built, uh, and that's where it actually started. And this was sort of your own problem that you tried to solve there, because you're all passionate skiers. Or where did the motivation to build lightweight skis come from? It really. I think there was a bit that frustration that you know the, it was the the period where the fat skis came. Um, so from a, a very very long pissed skis heritage, which which were built with heavy wooden cores, um, and actually did the job on piste. And then eventually, you know, what ski manufacturers did is just to make the same use the same construction, make make making skis wider. Yeah. So there were some people around, and and DB skis clearly were were pioneers in that in that sense, um, who who started thinking of of new ways and new structures to actually build the skis. Uh, not just scaling the, the the weight along with the size or the width of the skis. Yeah. Um, so I think that that was clearly one one driver. But then also 
also the, i mean it started you know the free touring started to 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 pick up um resorts started to be quite crowded with with free skiers and so mm-hmm. uh really thinking incorporating also the fact that eventually you, we would we would have to carry up the or carry the, the skis up the hill yeah. but we still wanted to have fun wide skis actually to ski then uh, those were kind of the the driving elements amazing and then how do you go from you know building innovative new skis to building a company that was still quite a big step so you s- sort of said you saw the potential of the material that you were using how do you then start the company out of working on your skis in the garage yeah well um there is actually a business case we built based on making skis yeah. you know so so basically taking what taking what um Cyril had started with uh, db before mm-hmm. um he had sold his part of the company and that was you know that was continuing uh, in the us with his former partner and there, so there was this idea initially that we could say well we could improve that make you know get rid of the mistakes they have done yeah. uh, and launch a ski a ski company it was a period where ski companies just popped popped out of the of the of the ground like mushrooms um you know with with people like like um like faction skis or or uh, black crows people a lot, a lot of people know um that was a period so mm-hmm. cyril had a very strong point there and he said look guys it will eat up tremendous resources in terms of, of marketing budget um it will be very tough to make our you know make our little place in the sun um, so we said, well, why not actually step, take a step back and instead of going to the, the B2C configuration, build a B2B um, company. Mm-hmm. So suddenly these people who eventually will become your competitors, become your customers. Um, in terms of marketing budget, that means that instead of, uh, you know, uh, launching all the, all the campaigns you need to do to actually to get visibility, we will go to uh, to the um, ISPO in Munich, which is the world's, lar- the world's largest uh, ski or winter sports equipment uh, fair in the year we will go there every year in january february um meet all our customers within a week uh and start selling what really made the difference in the ski which was the, the core itself so that's where we had identified the the lightweight potential so mm-hmm. we had really uh, put a lot of effort in designing the the ski core um and that that approach worked out so we we were able to to uh, acquire the first customers very quickly uh, with faction skis actually um, and scale then into the winter sports industry from there. That sounds amazing. And was that then also sort of the switch where you decided to, okay, we, we leave this from an evening project and we actually go and build a company full-time? It was it was very much, I mean, it was actually, uh, so we take we took the decision even before. So at some nice. point um, we had we had done some, actually even some ski poles with the, the flax fiber composites. Um, and... I will. I will always remember. Uh, we had this meeting in in Fribourg in a in, in a restaurant just just outside Fribourg. The four co-founders together, mm-hmm. and and Cyril had told me, Christian, f- think about it. You know, it 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 might be a good time, a, a good moment in time. So he had a, a career change. I was I was tired of my my corporate uh, experience, um, and we said, well, let's meet. You know, Saturday in a week, and and we'll go for brunch, and then we decide where we take it from, and. Um, so I, I was pretty confident that I wanted to, to leave my job and I had discussed it with my wife. Um, and, uh, so we, we got there and Cyril, you know, just said, well, I, I actually quit my job. So are you up for it, (laughs) Christian? And I was like, whoa, okay, sure. You know, let's do it. So two out of the four co-founders, we've already, um, basically checked out on that day and said, okay, uh, we dropped the, the former job. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we had a very 
hardcore approach project approach to it in a sense that we we defined milestones and we said okay by then we need to have secured seed money uh by then we need to understand where we're going to be sitting in terms of the offices um and that worked out quite well uh we then went to fribourg um that's where we 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 found the our, our home base um and so you know we w- were all quite mature in the sense that we 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 had already some some experience some professional career mm-hmm. some of us had families um so it was no option to you know to do the hardcore uh eating pasta and drinking water for for a year or two <laughs> and, and looking what happens um so we had a quite systematic approach approach from there but it it was i mean it was a, a very important moment uh, also in the sense you know with with my wife in the sense that we so we have this deal that each of us has a as a joker once in life and um so i i got home that evening and said Jenny, this is my joker. I take it. You, you're going to cover my back. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, quitting the job with with a lot of insecurity in terms of revenue for for at least the first and second year. Um, but yes, here we are. That was a huge step to take. But I wonder, this plan that you made with these very clear and specific milestones, yeah. did that also help you to not only gain more clarity yourself, but also to really get your partners on board to say, hey, look, we have a plan and that's how you can measure us against the plan. Yeah, absolutely. So, so clearly it was, it was, you know, and and um, I remember also when we went pitching for seed capital, uh, it was clear that you know eventually we had this amount of, of chances of cards mm-hmm. to play. Uh, eventually, one of them had to play out, uh, and it worked out with with seed capital Fribourg. Um, but exactly, I mean, that was exactly. I think it's it helps like always, right? Putting putting steps and milestones to a, to a problem helps k- k- taking out the, the emotionality of it. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we did there. Yeah. Fantastic. And you talked about your co-founders. Originally, you were four co-founders. How did the four of you meet? Um, around skiing, actually. So there was there was Cyril with, with this project, uh, with the DB Skis project. And then Andreas had done a project um, on it during his studies at the University of Applied Sciences in Fribourg. Um, and I couldn't actually tell you exactly how, so two of us met at some, at some party in Lucerne, Cyril and I, at some point, and eventually we just gathered and said, and said, look, um, uh, we would need Julien's support in terms of really hardcore R&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then Andreas and, and Cyril had worked together before. Um, so that kind of happened naturally, even though we didn't, we didn't know each other really before. Nice. So just how life plays out, right? Exactly. Random acquaintances. Exactly. However, then, and I think that's very normal in many startups journeys, you then sort of went from four to two operationally involved that's co-founders. Right. That's right. How do you manage that? Is that something that was a challenge for you to navigate because you sort of lost half your co-founders? <laughs> or on the other hand, was that actually a good and a very natural development? How did you experience it? I think... A bit of both, in the sense that right. it, you know, objectively, if you look at it, it was natural the way it happened. Um, of course, when you are in it, uh, as it happens, it it's, it it can be quite painful, right? Yeah. Um, clearly, yes. So, so we were four. Uh, we were also clear that we didn't have the resources, neither the resources or really maybe the work also to mm-hmm. to 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 keep all the four of us busy. Uh, Andreas had a good setup where he could he was able to work part time at the University of Applied Sciences in Fribourg. Um, so Cyril and I started and then, and then Julia eventually joined about six, eight months later. Um, we had the funding to, to cover the three, you know, salaries, mm-hmm. uh, of course, quite, quite thin one, but still to, to, to be able to finance the three of us through the first year. And, um, then what happened, you know, my analysis is that clearly, uh, eventually Andreas, so Andreas 
for him, the, the situation of having one foot in, at the school and one, one, one foot at B-Comp was not really satisfying. Um, eventually, he, you know, he wanted to have a decision from us uh, whether we wanted to have him on board. I think there was a bit too much, too many overlaps between him, him and Cyril. They have a similar background, uh, even though they're very different in, in the way now they, their career has developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was where Andreas dropped out after, the, after 18 months, I believe. Um, and then we went on with a, with a set with the three co-founders, uh, Cyril, Julien, and myself, until 2017. And there, so um, so we, we had been developing Bcom for, for five years then. Yeah. Uh, and that's if you look at the, the profile and the career of Cyril, he's he's a he's a serial entrepreneur. That's that's his thing, right? So mm-hmm. eventually there was a, a big discussion whether we should de- continue developing Bcomp more of as a, a lifestyle company, uh, focusing on the recreational market, so sports and leisure industry, uh, like we had started, mm-hmm. uh, where Julia and I were very eager to explore the opportunity in, in more b- mobility and the large-scale mobility space, where we saw you know, that's really where we have the scaling effect, where we could grow really yeah. big. Um, and that's really where you know we, we didn't agree. And, and, and I think very healthy discussions where eventually Cyril said, look, I think I'm more. Uh, I'm going to be in your way now with with the, the plans and uh, where you want to go. Uh, we found a very good agreement um, between the three of us of, of of you know letting him go but still having a, a fair setup. Yeah. Um, and that's where then Julia and I, from where we then took it, uh, and actually that, that that correlates also with Series B fundraising, where we said okay. Um, we we were break even fifteen sixteen so mm-hmm. you know we, we we managed to build a a healthy company with um, twelve people ten twelve people back then but that's where we said okay if we want to give us a fair chance to actually scale into the large scale mobility industry we need to pick up more funds uh, we need to build a team professionalize the team uh, and then take it from there amazing and talking about the fair setup you know when a co-founder is leaving. It's always difficult probably to have this conversation, especially if they have worked for multiple years yeah. in the company. How do you sort of protect the company in terms of getting the shares back and making sure that you don't have shareholders who are maybe not either putting a lot of money in the company or working full time on the company? That's a that's a tough one, Silvan. I, 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 you know, I'd, I'd, I mean, I, I wish I wish I had, I had the answer, but um. You know, I mean, it eventually goes back to the concept of fairness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what what exactly that is, and and how you can how you can build a, a, a fair setup for everyone is very very difficult. You know, as soon you, I mean, you know you know perfectly well from your own experience, as soon you've started um, really to you know to to put uh, sweat and tears into into the venture, started working. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody contributes in the way he or she can. Um, uh, some people have different personal setups uh, you know they and other people can 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 uh, deal better with with pressure and and can can actually invest more in, into the venture so it's i find it very difficult difficult eventually to find um to find a way to really make it fair for everyone mm-hmm. um the way we solved it is really to have to sit down and say okay what's your feeling what would be a fair solution now and no. and 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 you know f- and for the ones staying in the um staying in the venture I think it, I mean, you know, I, I think it worked out well. Um, and I'm very thankful to Cyril the way we, we eventually sorted it out. But I don't, I don't think there is a good one, uh, kind of a, a one size fits all solution to that no. problem. Um, fact is that it didn't, it didn't harm our investability, um, what happened there. So also linked to, you know, we solved it within founders and the, um, the other shareholders, they waived their rights. So they really let this 
cleanup operation happen. Yeah. So I think it's very important also that you have a healthy relationship with the shareholders around you, Absolutely. Um, letting you sort out these things when they eventually happen. And as you say, I think it's very natural. Um, That's just life. It's just life, right? Absolutely. Did he then end up buying his shares back or how did you solve it in the end? That's actually, that's what we did, yes. Yeah. Got it. I personally think that's probably the best way from a company perspective. If you think, what do we need to do to solve and protect the company? But I see there are many angles to that, depending on which perspective you take. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's also talk about your company and your products. Mm -hmm. You offer two separate solutions. The Amplitex and the Power Rips are all of these based on Flax today. They are based on flax, and maybe it's important also to to you know zoom out again and talk about. We we started talking about ski cores, right? Sure. Um, so the ski cores were a mix of balsa wood, uh, the lightest wood oh, on earth. Yeah. Most people might remember it from making airplanes when they were kids. Um, so yeah. we we blended <laughs> balsa wood and and reinforced it with the flax fiber, yeah. um, and that I mean that business picked up really nicely, and we scaled uh, we we, sp- we scaled quickly into the the ski industry. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, the importance of lightweighting in the ski industry kind of faded away. Plus, there were competition, uh, you know, light other lightweight woods that were uh, not as light as our solution, but mm-hmm. but lower cost. Um, and eventually, we just saw also that the the synergies with the with the, the Amplitex and the Paris products okay. was not given any a, a, anymore. So we divested that um, that product. Uh, two years ago, really to focus on the on the flax based product. So, to, to back to your to your question, yes, both are using flax fibers. Um, so there is a high level of synergies between these two products, and actually they are together jointly. They build a solution, mm-hmm. um, and the the paribs the parib solution is imagine um, the ribs on a, on a leaf. It's really it's a way we we found to organize uh, to avoid smearing the material into the surface. And organize a ribbed a ribbed structure on the on the B side of a material. Mm-hmm. Um, think typically of a of a of a body panel of a of a race car, um, like yeah. the hood, for instance. Yeah. So on the B side, you would have a ribbed structure, so you, you won't see it. But that's actually the the backbone of of the of the of the part. Mm-hmm. Um, and that innovation allows us to to compete against carbon fiber composites. Um, so really reaching high performance applications in specific in specific cases. Um, and then the Amplitex is really. People, most of us know the uh, you know the carbon fiber composites from the bike frame for the for, or from the tennis racket. Yeah. So it's really the same approach. So we we have a reinforcement material. We organize the fibers in a certain you know the smartest possible way, mm-hmm. and then we we add a plastic a resin to it, and together they make a composite material. And it allows you to remove a lot of um, a lot of weight because if you would just to use plastic uh, alone, uh, the material the properties would be quite poor translating in a, in a lot of material being used to to perform a certain function. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, jointly they make they make a, a solution. Um, now there are cases where we only use uh, the Amplitex. The Paribs is ne- are never used on their own because they they really again they are just a, a grid that yeah. that provide the structure. But in some applications where lightweighting is not so critical, um, then the Amplitex would be the the solution for the for the customer. And can you also explain us why flax is sort of the king of sustainable materials? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, there are, there are clearly other other ways to to go for more circular and sustainable materials. Um, uh, so, number one, for us, it's very important that we so we we build a performing a performance solution. Um, lightweighting was very core when we started B Comp. Uh, uh, Julian and I, you know, back then nobody the markets wouldn't pay a premium for green yet. So. Yeah. We were really obsessed with developing a solution that would perf- that would outperform the benchmark 
according to standard engineering metrics. So, mm-hmm. so you know, we need to perform a certain function for um, applications, be it in the in the sports and, and leisure industries, but also in the mobility industries. And we will we'll talk a bit about that later. Um, and and considering that there, there is a baseline, there is a, a reference material. We mm-hmm. want to replace it and make things better, right? And and now. So um, there, we, we 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 managed to develop that solution based on flax uh, on flax fiber composites, um, and then from there, of course, eventually boosted by the COVID crisis, uh, green credentials suddenly become a very very strong USP for our solutions. So yeah. you know, in terms of our, of our offering, um, in there are many exa- many examples where actually the green credentials now the 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 CO two footprint that we reduce versus what we replace has mm-hmm. become more important than the the lightweighting itself. Um, so and so back to your question, why why flax? Um, there are two things that are important with flax. Number one, um, it's a, a supply chain that has been around for for centuries. We all we all know flax. We all know flax from the linen textile industry, um, and so you know linen was used by the Egyptians for mummification. So it's it's a material that has been um, very very has been around for very long. There are supply chains that are very mature to serve the textile industry. Um, that's one aspect, and the other aspect is that the what we call the intrinsic mechanical properties are very high. So the the fiber itself has has high mechanical properties. If you manage to extract it properly and organize it in a way um, that you you make a reinforcement fabric rather than making a home or or a, a fashion textile, then you actually get a, a highly engineered material out of it. Oh, amazing, mm-hmm. and we heard that you sort of pivoted away from skis towards the mobility space. So, what are these materials used for today? Um, so, it, it's not actually a pivoting in the sense that we you no know, pivoting. In my understanding, is that you let something behind and you focus on something new. Fair. You found a different application. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but clearly, so. The the sweet spot we found for our applications is things that need to be light, uh, thin, and stiff. Yep. Um, so when you think of it, typically in, in so I mentioned the the automotive industry before. Um, so panels, uh, um, body panels, um, typically uh, they are exactly that. So they need they are mostly made from metals from aluminum alloys. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are thin, they are light, and and they need to they are designed for stiffness. So they need to. To resist, uh, you know, wind pressures, and also when you when you sit on the on the hood of your car and things like that. Um, so that's one of the sweet spots for our technology. And so you think exterior, but then you can also think interior. Uh, if you look around you in, when you're sitting in the car, there are what we call the door panels, where we have the handles and the uh, the buttons uh, integrated, uh, you know, to 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 uh, put your window up and down. Um, so there is a multitude of applications, both outside and inside the car. Um, we identified the motorsports sector back in 2016 as our mm-hmm. stepping stone into the large-scale mobility um, sector, and and motorsports is interesting in in many ways. So so number one, you know, if you look at of course, you know, the our market entry into recreational is very passion driven, right? We wanted it, it came from the from our passion for skis. Of course, yeah. um, now when we we explain that to to potential investors today, we have a very uh, a, a very entrepreneurial and logical way to explain things. Where, according to which, um, the sports and leisure industry, or recreation as we call it, uh, is it features very low entry barriers. So it's a very lowly regulated market that translates into low entry barriers that translates into short time to market. That was very important for us as, a, as an early stage startup. Um, 
Now, when you look at the automotive industry, it's it's mm-hmm. the opposite. It's a bit of a Champions League of the industries. In yeah, the exactly. That. That's like where the big guys play. So exactly. every tiny detail matters so much, right? Exactly. So it's very highly regulated. There is, yeah. It's very heavy on processes. It's very heavy on quality management. Yeah. Um, and we said, okay, in order to get there and be credible as an automotive player, yeah. we use the motorsports um, niche as, a, as an entry door. Yeah. The interesting thing is it's a bit at the interface. And some people say, well, you know, motorsports is, is the sports and leisure of wealthy people. And so, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's a similar market like mm-hmm. we were used to. Yeah. Um, the design cycle times are also very quick. Uh, but the very interesting thing is that basically all car makers have a motorsports department and use it as an innovation platform and marketing yeah. platform. Of course. Um, so once they have validated novel technologies for the motorsports sector, then they will work um, with the suppliers to validate them for their road cars. And that's where the scaling effect comes. I see. Yeah. And how do you price your materials? Do you just pay per certain amount of weight or shape? Or how do you price your products? Because you don't have the traditional software. Yeah, give me some recurring revenue business model. That's a good, it's a good, good question. And we, I mean, we, we struggled with it for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and so what we came up with, because it's also important, I think, for our listeners to understand that we, we actually so we might make it sound like we sell parts, but we actually sell yeah. the semi-finished product. So yeah. we sell a, a product, a material on rolls or in sheets, mm-hmm. and they are then we sell them to to the, the parts manufacturers who then mold them uh, into yeah. the parts, into, into the final parts. So it's sort of raw material for them. A bit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what we really look at is, is at the function uh, that we yeah. perform. So clearly, no purchases in the example where we, we, uh, we replace injected plastic in a, mm-hmm. in a car interior uh, for a seat back, for instance, then the purchases often will refer to, you know, as a kilo price or something. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at that, of course, we're much more expensive because the material is much more complex. Is much, there's a much higher level um, of engineering involved in, in making that material. Of course. Um, However, so you need, of course, to look at the function. So we look at the at the final part price and think and try to understand exactly the pricing structure for our customer, um, and then understanding also factoring in what is the lightweighting, uh, what is the value of lightweight for the customer. Um, you know, the most extreme example is if when we talk about airplanes. Of course, there's a very direct correlation between the weight of the airplane um, and the the kerosene that's being that that's used. So you can actually factor that in into your solution. Assuming that you remove a certain amount of kilos, of course, right? Yeah. Um, so there's this t- sort of premium. Um, then there is typically also now the green credentials more and more, right? Mm-hmm. So car makers go out and say, uh, "We we need your help to decarbonize our supply chain," and then yeah. we say, "Well, what's the value of that decarbonizing?" So we have a solution to help you decarbonize your supply chain. So then you you look at at figures like uh, social cost of carbon. You know what what, what is society prepared to pay for it? Sometimes the purchases start having figures also. Yeah. Um, so long story short, it's we try as much as possible to do value based pricing, understanding what are the factors that make our solution more interesting um, than what the customer is using today. Um, but eventually, you know, then th- that's one side of the thing. And then you have also the, the, the cost targets of the purchasers and of the vehicle program leaders. Yeah. Um, so the reality is generally somewhere, somewhere between somewhere there, right? Makes sense. But I love this value priced approach. I think that's the way to go for anyone building a solution. And at the same time, that also sort of limits your customer base. So who are your customers today? Um, so today, I mean, clearly, so we have, you know, customers like K2, uh, uh, for the ski industry, which historically are our, our, actually our oldest uh, customers now. Um, so that is an example in the recreational space mm-hmm. in the motorsport sector. We serve, 
pretty much all all famous uh, motorsports players. Um, so if you think of what we call customer racing, so GT racing, um, you know, be it Porsche Motorsports, uh, Audi Motorsport, uh, uh, Aston Martin Racing, um, we had a very uh, str- we have we have a very tight collaboration with McLaren Racing also. So mm-hmm. our material is being used in in um, in some of the Formula One cars in wow. the seats of, of Lando Norris. Typically. That's cool. <laughs> that's very cool. Um, yeah. And and so so there is that's a set of customers. Yeah. And now we're working very tightly together with uh, mostly with the the motherships of these the motorsports sectors, but then mm-hmm. also Volvo Volvo cars. Um, so we started delivering our material solution into the new EX30 of Volvo. Um, so that was actually, that was also a major milestone for the company. Um, and we started delivering into this vehicle program just uh, two months ago. Well, so that's, that's a huge step because you, you go sort of from, I assume, smaller pieces and yes. smaller volumes to higher volumes. It's especially, especially the volumes. I mean, the you know, there are some very large um, parts. If you think of a hood of a Porsche GT4, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. that sort of car that's, that's very big. Yeah. Uh, but then it's true that once you, you, you start scaling, I mean, we, we talk typically in the motorsports space about hundreds, you know, max a couple of thousand cars per year mm-hmm. for, for one, um, for one motorsports player. Yeah. And then suddenly you talk about hundred thousand plus, right? So yeah, it's course. two orders of magnitude larger. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine it generates quite some stress into the organization, of Absolutely. course, to make that step. And that's exactly the topic I want to talk about next because you've been around for 12 years. Yeah. So uh, among these 12 years, you have grown quite a lot. What were some of the biggest growth challenges that you had to overcome so far? Um, I think, I mean, there are, there are, I would say twofold. Number one, mm-hmm. number one is, is reaching, re- reaching these, milestone, these milestones that are key f- to enter a certain vertical. No. Um, so typically, if you think of, of the automotive industry, uh, you know, we, we, we started collaborating with Polestar. I mean, clearly they are our early adopter for the large scale uh, automotive industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just helped us understanding the, the rules of the game and, yeah. and also told us, guys, um, you know, you are new to the automotive space. You will be single, single uh, material supply for us. Uh, it's all, you know, everything that the purchasing organization hates, that's, no, you know, course. that's what you are. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, one, they, one thing they told us typically is you need to be IATF certified. So the IATF stands for International Automotive Task Force. It's like ISO 9001, but powered by three, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, a big chunk of processes and things you need to, to, to set up. Yeah. So that's just an example to show how you need to transform the organization, um, to adapt for these new markets that you're, you're adding to your um to your to your marketing strategy or or or, or, or to the, the targets um those are clearly the, the the big the big milestones i think and then along with that i mean the second dimension clearly is is the people you build right the team yeah. you build around that and and it's it's some sometimes a bit painful to to understand and accept that um you know the team you had for for early stage um you know from seed to series a typically mm-hmm. it's not the same team you need to then go into the scale-up phase, which is not the same team you need to then actually build a, a materials tech supplier that you know suppl- that 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 supplies the material solution into the automotive industry. Yeah, um, yeah. That that is a huge challenge. I think that many startups that grow also face on their own. And you know, this culture change from hey, we're a startup, we're sort of trying things out, we all know each other, to a scale-up. I think you now have more than seventy employees. This is a change, and you 
probably triple or double multiple times. So how do you make sure that you adapt the people you need? Because you said they change, but also keep the culture intact. Because yeah. with different people, you also have sort of a change in culture, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe the, the, the first thing is to understand and accept that you won't be able to keep exactly the same culture, right? Yeah. As you just say, I mean, it's a completely different thing. Um, having five, 12 people uh, fighting for this, for this early stage startup um, then actually having a, a team of 75 with professional automotive project managers who exactly know, you know, by the book, how an automotive project needs to be run and all of that. And which also implies that you need to, to play according to, to the rules, right? Of course. Um, so I think trying to understand what is really the core of your culture in the sense of, you know, what is the, what is the DNA of Bcomp? What is, what is it yeah. we really want to maintain? Uh, and, and, and push through the different phases, mm -hmm. maintain through the different phases while reshaping you know the, the kind of the, the the macro thing or the macro culture um yeah. from step to step and accepting that it has to change and accepting that new people with different mindsets will come into the the organization yeah. uh, eventually changing the culture so i think it's it's a very fine balance um to keep also the the right amount of i call them the pioneers you know, the one the mm -hmm. ones that were around since you know year one basically yeah. um who see, of course, that change, who see that there are more cumbersome processes coming on that, you know, you just don't go to whatever person and, and, and sort it out, you know, two or with two or three people. But sometimes, you know, it needs a bit more of more, more political discussions and, and involving more people. Um, I find it a very difficult balance. So I, I think we've done pretty good at actually understanding what is our, the core of our culture mm -hmm. and, and protecting it as much as possible while accepting that, things change yeah. uh, also accepting that some people might not be the right ones anymore you know yeah. for a, a new phase uh, of the adventure i think that's the brutal reality but it's also a very normal course of any scale up what are some of the key roles that you had to hire and also introduce to the company when you were actually growing up to these 70 people what were some things that that really changed in terms of roles of people I think um, the first, so if I think back, uh, there's a, a good, co a strong correlation between fundraising um, steps and, and yeah. increasing the level of professionality of the team. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always say at the beginning, you are, I mean, we were four co-founders. Uh, everyone takes the, the piece of the cake that she or he likes, right? Of course. And then, but there's, there's a heck load of other, <laughs> you know, of other pieces still around, right? Yeah. And then typically from my example, in my example, I took the, the supply chain and, mm -hmm. and the, the supply network piece. Uh, with no clue, you know, no education whatsoever in, in supply chain management, uh, purchasing and so forth. Um, so, and, and each of the three other ones had, you know, other, other pieces, which they were not really comfortable with. Yeah. You go along, you, you do your bootstrapping, um, and eventually, eventually realize, okay, typically with, uh, with, with, you know, in the purchasing, the operations part in 2017, we realized, okay, now it's really getting difficult for me to handle that supply chain topic. Yeah. It's now the next step the, to actually hire, um, a proper operations manager who then became our COO, um, and who really brought our operations to the next level. Mm -hmm. Um, then also. Yeah, so, so that, that I think 2017 was was one of the important when we said we zoomed out and said, okay, which are the important steps? Yeah. Uh, we also onboarded a, a, a marketing manager who became our chief marketing officer, who was very strong in in B two B marketing, yeah. but also then uh, since she had a, an economics background, I told her, look, um, yeah, but you actually need also to to keep our finance together because we don't have the resources to also onboard a CFO right now. Of course. So yeah. 
uh, and that's that's all about you know that's this uh, the bootstrapping mindset is that you go as far as possible with each of these topics until things start breaking apart exactly right? I, I think that's the right way to grow then you know oh we have an issue here we need to fix it yeah. we can't handle it anymore yeah. so i heard coo cmo cfo and in, in sort of one person um what did he do with sales for example um and i mean sales was another topic that clearly where you know cyril was holding uh, was was managing uh, the the sales um before he left and then mm -hmm. we said okay that's the now the occasion you know i mean each time someone when someone leaves eventually also it creates an opportunity for 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 novelty right and yeah. we said okay um it's the opportunity to actually onboard for the first time someone who actually understands and has the automotive experience so we knew in in 2016ish uh, about 17 that we wanted we had decided okay we want to go into mobility yeah. um and I had the chance to, or I was I was able to to uh, to fool a pair into the company. He so we, <laughs> we 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 knew each other from we knew we knew one another from uh, from the studies. I was an exchange student in in Sweden. He nice. then was an exchange exchange student in um, in in Lausanne at EPFL. Uh, we met there. We started skiing. Like you know, there are a lot of things starting at become with skiing. Absolutely. Um, we became friends, and and uh, he so he has a similar background um, like I have. Mm -hmm. did did a, a composites career in Sweden eventually then um, ended up at Volvo cars and at one of the meetings I early stage meetings I had at Volvo I stayed at his place and I said look pair um if if you want to change something about your career you know at some point in time right. I think that would be good it would be a good a good moment now right. and it was kind of a joke you know I mean um and he said well why not that'd be cool to move back to switzerland uh, after all these years Boom. yeah and then he said christian maybe you should talk to my wife also and i said okay <laughs> okay um yeah. so long story short a pair you know paired moved his family from gothenburg to to the lausanne area mm -hmm. um and took over the, the the chief sales officer role uh Amazing. he has been doing now that for for more than six years yeah. um so he was also part of that first level kind of um you know increasing the level of professionalism and you know, and all the entire. I mean, he was working on the Polestar One project at Volvo Cars back oh, then, cool. so he came with a tremendous network, um, and and you know, that helped us, of course, uh, a lot to to get to get the first the early adopters on board, to uh, understand their mindset, to to understand also you know kind of translate their language and 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 implement first things into the company. Um, so yeah, these are these 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 you know in terms of personnel these are the big changes where you where you need to dare sometimes of course you know i'm of course i'm nervous when he says okay i'm going to move my family down to you're like whoa uh, you know the the cash runway right now is that many months but uh, is that okay you know so yeah. but but that's uh, those are the things the, the bold decisions you have to you have to take sometimes yeah. i love it how you make it sound so natural you know all sort of fit together right people right timing right place i guess Despite the personal network, how else did you recruit key personnel in this growth phase? Because that's probably one of the biggest challenges. You know who you need, but where and how do you recruit them? Yeah, um, I think, and that's where maybe also the you know the, the the startup ecosystem, the awards, and all of that. I think that's quite important. Not only, of course, to to win prize money at the beginning and, and finance your venture early stage, but also to to build credibility and visibility. Mm -hmm. So. Um, level one between seed round and, and, and series A, uh, I think we did a great job within the Swiss ecosystem. And, and, you know, the first people you need are engineers, right? When you, when you build of a course. tech startup. Yeah. So, um, having this, building this credibility, having a network also still into the, into EPFL and also then developing it uh, at ETH, yeah. um, 
building an attractive story, of course, for them. Uh, we are in the you know in the phase, especially in the 2010 plus. You know, it started. It just it's it's when it flipped from being, uh, for, you know, where people had this perception of of you did a startup. Are you crazy? Like, um, are you are you Things sure? Things changed. They yeah, were yeah. different back then. <laughs> are, you, are you sure you want to waste your your uh, your education on on such a crazy idea? Right. Um, to oh, this is the coolest thing on earth, yeah. right? I want to join a startup. So. I think we we took a lot of advantage in the early stage mm -hmm. of of one, one hour strong network into the the the, the tech high schools in um, uh, in Switzerland, mm -hmm. and then also the visibility we started to we we managed to build uh, within the Swiss startup ecosystem, yeah. and then stage two clearly um, two years ago we we uh, we closed Series B, during which we in the framework of which we onboarded the BMW I Ventures as our lead investor. Mm -hmm. Um, followed by the Volvo Tech Fund, um, Airbus Ventures, uh, Porsche Ventures, and actually also Generali. But but clearly, you know, in terms of building again credibility um, uh, within the automotive industry and towards the ecosystem yeah. in terms of hiring uh, or potential talent for us, yeah. that was very important. So now suddenly people say, Ooh, "Okay, it's not just a cool Swiss tech startup anymore. Yeah. They actually have." Uh, you know, they got the stamp from these from these big names, so there must be something about it. It's real. <laughs> it's real, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, I, and I always also say to my to to the to the students to to the young entrepreneurs, yeah. if there's one thing that's that's the common denominator to all startups, mm -hmm. independent of space, it's 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 this thing about building credibility. That's what we all do every of day, course. right? Mm -hmm. Towards your employees, towards every, your potential employees, yeah. exactly. To shareholders, um, supply network, you name it, right? And so I think that's, but we we feel now that really with this with this um, the visibility we generated through Series B and all the the, the strategic investors we, we were able to to onboard uh, on our cap table, that had a tremendous impact on on also the people we are able to to hire now. Yeah. I love that because it shows that you really have to put a lot of thought into that yeah. to also think what signal can I do by having this yeah. investor on board. Yeah. That's super crucial. Another thing that you're working on at the moment, you participate in the Swiss Stock Exchange training program, the Sparks IPO Academy. It's basically a program that prepares companies for an IPO. So first of all, I want to know what motivated you to participate in this program. Sure. Um, it's, it's actually Tobias, our CFO, who, who participated. And, and clearly, you know, number one, we want to keep all the options open, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's clear that we don't have a strong IPO culture in Switzerland. Uh, I mean, we, we have seen some very spectacular cases with ON in, in New York, yeah. for ex example, right? Yeah. Um, but there are very few IPOs uh, in Switzerland, actually, and especially coming out of the, the, the tech startup yeah. uh, ecosystem that's, that's very rich. Yeah. Um, so we said, okay, well, you know, that's clearly something that, that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. Tobias and myself have this you know, personal interest and, and think, wow, that would actually be a very cool thing. Yeah. Um, so... That was really the trigger, you know, not, not more and uh, not less. And, and we, we discussed it with the board and said, yeah, sure, it, it's an interesting option. Let's yeah. keep it open. And, and your first things first, we don't have a clear exit strategy in our shareholder agreement. So again, letting things open, yeah. let's go and explore. They will naturally find their way, I guess. And what are some of the main takeaways, if you can share any from the, from the program? I mean, number one, uh, it is an option, right? Yeah. Number two, we are not ready for it yet. So clearly we said we need this Series C that we're just doing now. Mm -hmm. um, 
but clearly uh, let's continue working on it and i'm i'm going next week to to uh, to london um to an event that actually that's co-organized co by by them together with the swiss chamber of commerce amazing um where they want to to bring along people out of the english ecosystem which has a much stronger culture in terms of small and mid cap yeah. um ipos and really you know starting this discussion um fostering the the discussions but also exposing the swiss ecosystem to to this mindset that is much more um small mid cap ipo you know driven um so i think you know it's it, it's really what what it is right now i th i think we're we're ex we're ex in exploration mode um some of us are very interested in the i think that would be a very attractive no. uh a very attractive option and and as i said last but not least we are we are personally very much uh driven by such a such an option that makes a lot of sense. And what would sort of be the main you know, advantages of doing an IPO on Sparks or the six main market? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I number one, I think it's something we have a bit too little maybe in Switzerland is, mm -hmm. is, is what I call a, a, a healthy portion of um, economical patriotism. You know, if I may, I know yeah. this, you know, the, the the word patriotism is, is is generally you know has this, this negative connotation but um typically when i see you know, in in scandinavia typically they are much there's much stronger about you know having um yeah having having have, being proud of, of of your of your economy and and of your of your key players uh and and you know taking well care of them so i think yeah. we see a lot of Swiss startups eventually, in terms of funding, um, you know, being being absorbed by 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 international funds, uh, also being taken over by international companies. Mm -hmm. So there is certainly this this aspect uh, at Bcom where we, where we say, well, it would be cool to establish a a big, you know, an important automotive player or materials tech player, um, and keeping it in Switzerland. Absolutely. Um, there's there's this I think this aspect to it uh and not not you know it's not we haven't thought about it much further than that yeah. but I, I like this statement and also that what you said before it's possible we can do ipos yes. in switzerland yes. i love this mindset yes. because i hope that this will generate more ipos here in switzerland eventually we, we need to, someone need to start right and of course it's a bit you know I've, I've met many 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 people tell me all the reasons why we would never make it within the automotive industry <laughs> and um that's clearly you know, something that triggers my interest when yeah. when i hear people saying Christian, this is not going to make, you know, this is not going to work out. I'm like, hmm, number one, if many people don't think it's going to work out, you know, that gives a space for the ones, the, the fool, the, the foolish ones who exactly. think there might be chance, right? <laughs> and number two, it's, as you say, I think we have this double, you know, we have this double function, as I always say, also in terms of, of um, uh, decarbonizing the world, mm. which is our, our, our purpose statement with our material, with our bio-based material, uh, performance material solutions. It's to to do our work ourselves, but it's also to inspire people, yeah. right? So, so I think um, if if we get our game straight, of course, and and, and our things straight, mm -hmm. and eventually can show that it's possible, as you say, and and same thing with with the, the IPO in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, again, it's it's very early stage for us, and there's not, but of but course. it's you know we we have started to dream of it, and we'll yeah. we'll keep on dreaming as long as uh, no one comes and tells us why it's really not possible. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So you say to these naysayers, challenge accepted. Exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> I love that. So we hear IPO is an option. What are other milestones that you are working on right now that you want to achieve over the next 12 to 24 months? So 
I'm, I'm personally, and I think Julie and I, since ever since we founded the company, we've been obsessed in bringing our material solution into into mainstream cars, right? And clearly, mm-hmm. w- with the Volvo EX30, uh, that's the first part of the milestone achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, you know, scale properly now and get the second foot um, into into the automotive industry. We have other um, vehicle programs in the pipeline. Uh, there will be a very big announcement actually by Polestar just now in the, on November 9th um, about our collaboration. And um, and so for me, it's really now, you know, adding, so solidifying what we're doing with Volvo and then and then adding the vehicle programs that, that are um, queuing up uh, nice. in our in our project pipeline. Um, then I think we will be able to say, okay, we we, we made it. We established Bcomp as a, a as a as a you know major player and, and as a materials tech company able to scale and able to serve large markets. Yeah. Um, from there on, we clearly so we have we have started a collaboration with Lufthansa Technik uh, six years ago. You know, when you talk about a highly regulated market, a very complicated market <laughs> being automotive, <laughs> then the passenger aircraft industry is next again, level. Next yeah. level. Um, so we are now still at R&D slash industrialization level with mm-hmm. that project. Um, you can imagine, you know, things like fire resistance and, and what, what they call heat release. There are major, major things, major hurdles to overcome technically. Um, but these are things, that's why I, 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 I on purpose don't, don't call ourselves an automotive supplier because that's really not what we want to become. We, yeah. we, we have these, the, the strategic markets and also motorsports and supercars continues to be an important um, vertical for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll keep on adding verticals wherever we think it, that there is a good product market fit and uh, uh, expand the, the global footprint. So we have now uh, a team in China uh, since uh, oh. a year. Um, we're going to establish Becomp China in January, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, now if there's a focus on really, you know, the, some of the material we sell go into cars in China or, or, or yeah. cars that are built in China. So mm-hmm. We have to have, of course, our supply chain under control, the quality management under control. We now start with customer support in China, uh, exploring, you know, also commercial expansion. Uh, and then North America will be also on, uh, on the target. So there is, um, uh, yeah, there is a lot of work still to come. You know, it, it yeah. always, it's fun when you do, when you build these companies, you, you, when you look back, you think, wow, I've, you know, we've done so much, but Absolutely. then when you look what's left forward, it's, it's always bigger. <laughs> it feels like you're still getting just started, right? Yeah, There's yeah. so much work to <laughs> exactly. do. Absolutely. Hey, to wrap up the conversation today, we also have some rapid fire questions for you, Christian. So I'm just going to give you different options to choose from or a quick question. And you have to answer in one sentence. Go for it. Researcher or entrepreneur? Entrepreneur, but as you, you, yeah, entrepreneur, but you know, my, my engineer's heart is bleeding a bit because of, of course. course, let's say research packed entrepreneur. Yeah, that's a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> What's the ski record that you're most proud of? I once did, um, I once did, did 15,000 verticals just skiing down in one day. Wow. Um, so just taking the same cabin. 15 uh, times in a row, skipping. <laughs> so we had lunch in the in the cabin and we just pumped yeah. powder for a day. But that was, yeah. you know, that w- it makes me feel old because that was many years ago. And That's the, fine. Yeah. That's <laughs> fine. Is there any product that is made of B-Comp material that is part of your everyday life? Or not yet? Maybe soon the not Volvo yet. car. Maybe, maybe <laughs> the, soon the Volvo car. You know, I... I I wasn't able to, or I, I cannot afford to buy a, like a Porsche GT4 race car or a, or, or a BMW motorsports race car. So, so not yet, but yeah, eventually I think we're getting closer and clearly, you know, that's also when, 
now we start talking about uh, we're driving this old Volvo XC mm-hmm. uh, XC70 from that's 12 plus years and the kids are saying Christian or dad well they call me dad of course they say my my my, my kids say dad you know the next car really needs to have V-comp material in it <laughs> so <laughs> we're working on it I love that <laughs> And what is the best quality a leader can have based on your experience? I mean, a lot of people have said that before, but I think empathy mm-hmm. is still the core, the very core um, characteristic of, of any leadership. Yeah. Then, of course, there's, you know, there's many things you need to add to, to the, just the empathy, right? You, you, you can't be just a good, a good leader just with empathy. Of but I, w- I think that's the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to pick one, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Fantastic. These were all my questions for today, Christian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure and lots of success for the future. I'm sure we're going to hear and see much more from you and Bcomp. Thank you very much, Silvan. It was a great pleasure, great fun and a very interesting discussion. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.